Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Everything Economics. I am your host, Talia Merok, and would like to begin by acknowledging that we are fortunate to be able to gather on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, where this podcast is recorded. Today, I'm going to be discussing opioids, with a focus on prescription meds. Johnson & Johnson were recently taken to court in Oklahoma for its role in fueling the opioid crisis in that state. And we all know that Oklahoma is not alone. Living in Vancouver, BC, it is clear that opioid use disorder and opioid poisonings are a massive public health and social issue, and I wanted to dig into what this means some more. I decided to split this into a two-parter episode because it is such a dense and complex issue. So in the first part of the discussion, I will be simply looking at what has happened. What do prescription rates look like across the US? And what does this mean for opioid-related deaths, as well as in Canada? In part two, I will talk about the economic and social impacts, plus solutions from different angles. As always, when I'm looking at these impacts and just considering the nature of what's going on, I am coming from a people-centric perspective, considering not how bad it is that a government might have to pay for additional healthcare during a crisis, but rather how the government can take measures to prevent people going into hospital care so those resources can be used to treat other sick people. So I'm not going to get too much into that today, but this is definitely the place I'm coming from in wanting to do this episode. Before I get into any of it, I just want to talk a little bit about people who use drugs. A huge number of people across the world will try out drugs in some way. In 2016, over half of Americans reported that they were current users of alcohol, which, remember, is a drug. It just happens to be legal. Why someone chooses to drink alcohol or try a different kind of drug will vary from person to person, and it is, in all honesty, their own business. When it comes to illicit drugs, those that are not legal or obtained legally, roughly 10% of the population are users, meaning they consume them frequently, if not every day. And then an even smaller amount have dependency issues that interfere with their day-to-day lives. Some reasons a person might choose to consume a drug, illicit or otherwise, could be for social reasons, for recreational purposes, to have fun, to escape their reality, to deal with a current or past trauma, or because that is all they know. In doing research for this episode, it is no surprise that I saw a lot of horrible comments made about people who have drug addiction problems. Many along the lines of, why should my tax dollars go towards helping a dumb junkie? I'm sure that listeners of this show do not subscribe to this type of nonsense. But just in case, please know, no one chooses to develop an addiction. It just happens. Most of the time, someone with a drug dependency has experienced trauma in their lives And drug use is the only thing that helps them forget or cope with that and their reality. Not everyone is able to grow up in a supportive home, get an education, work a stable job and feel okay. So I urge everyone engaged in any conversation about drug use and in this context, the opioid crisis, to exercise some empathy towards people in need. Someone developing a dependency to an illicit drug is no different to someone having a dependency on diabetes medication or antidepressants. This is a very complex health issue, and drug addiction entails both mental and physical reactions 
that require fair ethical treatment. Now, I have recently started listening to a fantastic Vancouver podcast made by drug users and advocates called Crackdown. It is really interesting, super important, and you can learn a lot more about drug use from the user perspective. It is a confronting show, but very powerful, and I'm just so happy that it exists. So let's take a look now at what has happened to prescription rates and opioid-related hospitalization and deaths over time to understand why Johnson & Johnson were taken to trial and why other court cases exist. I'm going to be using data and reports from the United States and from Canada, so looking at this in North America. Firstly, what even is an opioid? Well, opioids are a class of drug, a compound that resembles opium in addictive properties and physiological effects. These include heroin, the quote-unquote illegal opioid, pain relievers like oxycodone and Vicodin, morphine, and now synthetic alternatives such as fentanyl. Now, a very compelling statistic. 80% of opioid addicts in North America started their use with a legal pain prescription. Before the 1990s, opioids were prescribed by doctors to mostly cancer patients to treat their cancer-related pains. After this time, early on in the decade, the pattern of opioid prescriptions started to change. Pharmaceutical companies started to market opioids to doctors as safe, reliable medication for treating all pain, and as such, they were encouraged to prescribe them to non-cancer patients as well, who needed pain treatment, chronic or otherwise. Now, the intentions behind this push by pharmaceutical giants is, of course, debatable, but I personally feel that this was motivated by profits, just knowing how they behave in other areas, and that they did know the risks associated with the drugs, But the companies do, of course, argue otherwise. And I'm not here to get into that debate specifically. But by the end of the 1990s, 86% of patients using opioids were using them for non-cancer pain. The rate of prescription across North America climbed in the early 21st century, reaching its peak in 2012. On a federal level, in both America and Canada, there is no way to track the number of prescriptions written for patients during this time. Canada has recently implemented a system to start doing this, but for past data, we need to look at manufacturing and sales as a proxy, the critical years being between 2006 and 2012. Luckily for anyone who is interested, all of this data was required to be released by manufacturers and retailers. It was resisted by them, of course, with the fear that it contains important proprietary information and competitors could get an advantage in the industry. But this was necessary to deal with the epidemic at hand. Between 2006 and 2012, 76 billion oxycodone, brand name Oxycontin, and hydrocodone, brand name Vicodin, pills were distributed across the U.S., Just six retail companies, so pharmacies, were responsible for distributing 75% of the market. Just three companies were responsible for manufacturing the pills. Throughout these years, there were, of course, counties that had higher prescription rates, including West Virginia, Kentucky, and Virginia, where over 150 pills were being distributed per person per year. If you then take a look at the number of opioid-related deaths in these areas, they are 4.5 times higher than the national average, 
of 4.6 deaths per 100,000 residents, at 30 or more people dying per 100,000. In fact, in West Virginia, the death rate was 66 per 100,000 people dying due to opioid-related causes every single year. This is no coincidence. I'm not saying that manufacturers and retailers wanted people to die, but they definitely played a part in driving opioid use dependency and poisonings. I also want to mention a study out of the National Bureau of Economic Research that looked at the high opioid-related deaths compared to economic opportunities and dislocation as a driver for use. Much to even my own surprise, it found a very weak connection between the two. A lack of economic opportunities can often lead to drug experimentation and use, and this is sometimes like the first thing that comes to mind. But rather, this study found that high prescription rates had more of an impact on this crisis than anything else. Further, simply striving to improve economic outcomes in such areas, while good for so many other reasons, will only go a very small way in reducing drug use disorders among the community in these high opioid prescribing areas. Now, in 2012, seeing what was going on, the fact that people were getting prescribed opioids, they were in fact incredibly addictive and people were dying across the country, the US government started issuing hundreds of millions of dollars of fines onto the large drug distributors and retailers. Accordingly, the distribution of prescription opioids started to fall. But when people become addicted to opioids via illegal pain prescription, what happens when this ends? Well, it is common that these people turn to other sources. Perhaps some were able to seek suitable treatment such as methadone, but unfortunately a lot had to get their drugs from the street, things like heroin. High demand for this drug, and this opioid type high, saw drug cartels start blending fentanyl, a synthetic, highly potent, addictive and dangerous opioid, into their supplies. The epidemic spiralled further out of control, driving increased heroin use and now the fentanyl crisis, which caused the deaths of 67,000 Americans between 2013 and 2017. Here in Canada, the story is sadly similar. As of September 2017, 13% of the Canadian population used opioid pain relievers. This is lower than in 2013, however, when the rate was 15%, again reflecting that reduction in prescription rates. Among these users, roughly 2%, so that's over 730,000 people, reported using opioids for non-medical purposes. A number that has not really changed since 2013. So while prescriptions have gone down, addiction rates don't seem to have changed. Overall, 37% of opioid-dependent patients state that they receive their meds legally from doctors only. Pain is the most common reason patients seek opioid treatment, and in 2017, it was found that at least one in seven people in Ontario filled an opioid prescription. And just like in the US, opioids were advertised and marketed by pharmaceutical companies to doctors as safe, reliable pain treatment. On the contrary, the Canadian Guideline for Opioid Therapy and Chronic Non-Cancer Pain from 2017 reports that opioids do in fact have a 5.5% risk of addiction, recommending non-opioid drugs to treat pain instead. On top of this, some 15-29% to of the Canadian population experience chronic pain, but do not have suitable treatment access, 
sometimes having to wait six months or more for proper care. I would not be surprised if this drove a small portion of the illegal market, as chronic pain can leave you desperate. We know that 26% of opioid-dependent patients receive their meds from a mix of doctors and the street, and 21% solely from street sources. The exact same prescription street cycle has happened here. People have been prescribed opioids legally, some reason or another had their access reduced, turned to the street source for heroin, heroin has been laced with fentanyl, and we too face a fentanyl crisis responsible for at least 525 deaths in Canada between 2013 and 2014, some 46% of all opioid-related deaths. The emergency of opioid use disorders is clearly reflected within the Canadian healthcare system, where opioid hospitalisation rates have increased 27% over the past five years. This is more common in communities with smaller populations between 50,000 and 99,000 people. Between 2016 and 2017 alone, opioid poisoning hospitalisation rates went up 8%, averaging about 17 every single day. And this number doesn't even include emergency department or ED visits. Any patient who visits the ED but isn't actually admitted to hospital is treated separately in the data set. So if we now look at ED visits due to opioid poisonings, these rose by 73% and 23% in Ontario and Alberta respectively between the same years. These are the only provinces where data is available at the moment, but I imagine the story of a large increase resonates across much of Canada. At the end of 2018, the Canadian Institute for Health Information released a disturbing but excellent report on the opioid epidemic in Canada for the first time, reporting on four types of opioid harm present in the healthcare system. The four types of harm that they looked at include opioid poisonings, when an opioid is taken incorrectly causing harm, Opioid use disorders, including mental and behavioural disorders attributed to opioid use. Adverse drug reactions, when the drug is taken as prescribed but causes harm. And neonatal withdrawal symptoms, when an infant experiences opioid withdrawal symptoms due to an in utero exposure. And I will link this report in the show notes if you also want to dig deeper. It highlights some interesting information crucial to understanding and responding to the current epidemic being faced. In 2017, over half of opioid poisoning hospitalizations were accidental, while one-third were intentional. Between 2013 and 2018, younger adults between the ages of 25 and 44, as well as youth aged 15 to 24, had the highest growing rates of opioid poisonings of 62% and 53% respectively, compared to other age groups. And overall, during the same time, the rate of poisoning hospitalizations increased 48% among males and 10% among females. So we can see that a huge portion of the young male population is being harmed. In BC, the highest rate of hospitalizations were in Kelowna, between 40 and 53 people per 100,000 residents, as was Abbotsford and Mission, followed by Vancouver with 20 to 30 hospitalizations per 100,000. 
Even more alarming is that opioid use disorders hospitalizations actually grew even more than the poisonings. It is not surprising then that the rate of neonatal withdrawal symptoms increased by 21% from 2013 to 2017. Now, fortunately, these are often non-fatal, but the cost of having a neonatal patient in this type of care is huge. And the emotional burden on a new mother with a use disorder, I can only imagine, must be awful. Some provinces, however, did have an overall decrease in opioid hospitalizations, including Alberta, Saskatchewan, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Prince Edward Island. While small, these are still significant. These decreases were due to a number of prevention initiatives, such as a rise in supervised consumption sites and overdose prevention sites, prescription monitoring programs, increased availability of naloxone, an overdose reversal drug that was once available only with prescription and was only injectable, that is now available without a prescription and in the form of a nasal spray, and then just general education campaigns about the risks associated with opioids, among others. So with all of this death and fear, it is great to know that some public policy has in fact been effective, even if it is by a small amount. It still seriously needs to be amplified Canada-wide and also in the US. Forcing data collection is an important part, but actually investing in fair treatment and care, I think, is more important. And this is what brings me to the end of this data-dense episode on the opioid crisis in North America. As I mentioned up top, I will be releasing a part two on this topic, looking at the impacts of the crisis at both a national and community level, and explore solutions and treatment for those in needs. It is quite an intense subject matter. If you are in urgent need, please call 911. And in BC, you can call the BC Mental Health Line on 310-6789. I really look forward to exploring what this is actually doing on a more people-based level and finding out what things are being done to address it. As always, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find me on Twitter at Talia Murdoch and the entire network at Cape Goblins across all social media platforms. Check out our Patreon if you want to support us or rate and review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening. Be kind to each other. I am Talia Murdoch and this has been Everything Economics. Revolver is the new weekly show on the Cave Goblin Network exclusive to Patreon backers of just $1 or more. Each series lasts for a maximum of 12 episodes, then switches hosts and premises. Series 1 is the CGN internal interview series hosted by me, Doug Vandalay, where I interview every member of the Cave Goblin Network. Get to know us at patreon.com forward slash cavegoblins. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.